So it seems like that this is a, a really um, bold title, isn't it? Foreign, Russia's foreign policy revealed in Bible prophecy. How could it possibly be that this, this ancient book tells us anything about what Russia's foreign policy is today? How could it possibly be the case? And in fact, what we're going to do is we're going to look at not the, the newest part of the Bible, which is the New Testament, but we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew prophets, to see what they have to say. And we think it's quite a relevant uh, subject. So let's, let's go straight in there now and look at what I think is a pivotal key prophecy for our day. It, it deals with Russia, but it's a, it's a prophecy for our day. And it's Ezekiel chapter 38. Now we're going to select some verses from this chapter. It speaks about an invasion of a power. And we're going to just uh, try and unpick some of the things that, that, that we find there. And we'll start off with looking at the first three verses, the introduction to the, to the prophecy. Now, by all means, turn up these, these passages if you want to. But all of the passages I think I'm going to quote are, are on the screen for you to, to see. So let's kick off with verse one then. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So it is a prophecy directed to an individual whose name is Gog, and he's described as being of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And then verse 3 says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So let's just think about um, that, that phrase there, chief prince. Now I've highlighted it because I'm going to retranslate it. Because the word chief in the Hebrew is a proper name, and it is the name of Rosh. So we could retranslate verse 2 as the land of Magog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And exactly the same in verse 3, the Prince of Rosh, of Meshach, and Tubal. So what does that tell us? Well, Rosh is an ancient name for the area which we know today as Russia. And historians uh, have, have identified that to be, to be the case. Meshach may also have some relevance. It might refer to Moscow and Tubal uh, more probably refers to a river in Siberia called the River Tobol. So we've got some identification about who this invading power is. This is the primary invader of a particular land and this invader is supported by other nations. We're not going to concern ourselves too much with, uh, with that. We just want to focus on, on Russia and Russia's foreign policy. Now, if we think that that evidence isn't quite strong enough, what about another verse which adds weight to the idea that it is direct, it is, this prophecy is directed to the ruler of Russia? In verse 15 of the same chapter, it says, Thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. So they're coming from a particular geographical location. And because Ezekiel is a Hebrew prophet, even though he was in captivity at the time, north of the area of the land of the Hebrews, the land which we know today as the land of Israel, 
is undoubtedly the, the mighty nation of Russia. So we've got a couple of ways of identifying that this prophecy is dealing with an invasion which will take place and it will come from the north. It's not going to come from the west or the south or the east. It will come from the area of the north, out of, uh, from my place, out of the north parts. So let's look at some other verses, and I've selected three more verses. And we want to look now at the, the different aspects that are, uh, are we can pull out of these verses. Because we want to know, well, what about this prophecy? We want to know more about it. When? What is it really telling us? Well, Ezekiel 38 is one of these prophecies that occur in the Bible, which has what we might call a distant fulfillment. Some prophecies in the, in the Old Testament, they have a fulfillment very soon, almost immediately after they have been they have been spoken, there is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Not so with Ezekiel 38. And that's made really clear by the verses, the, the, the highlighted part of the verses that we've got there. It says in verse 8, that after many days. Now, Ezekiel 38 is written around about the time of um, BC 600, approximately around that time. So that's 2,600 years ago. And so that certainly fulfills the after many days period. And then it goes on to tell us a bit more. It says in verse 8 also, In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword. And then in verse 16, it says, it shall be in the latter days. Now, when you get a, a phrase like that occurring in the Bible, it's telling us that there's an end time period to something. And then there's another time period that will follow that. Let me give you um, another example. If we look at prophecies in the New Testament, you'll find that some reference is made to a period known as the last days. And that's not talking about the same time, mostly. It's talking about the last days of the time that the Jews spent in their land way back in the first century. And that period ended with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And it's very clear from a number of references in the New Testament that that was speaking about that time. It's identified as the last days. Here we've got a similar idea. But it's not referring to that time period at all, as we shall see in a moment. It, it, it's way beyond that. And I believe that we can identify the latter days as a time period for us. And we do that by just looking more at these verses, looking in more detail. So here's a bit more information. Thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. So again, we've highlighted the, 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 the words that we want to really look at in orange, um, and we are being told there that this land is brought back from the sword. It's always been waste, and we know where it is because it says in verse 8, it's against the mountains of Israel. And what happened in AD 70 was that the Romans came and destroyed the Jews, destroyed the, the temple, they um, scattered the Jews throughout four corners of the world, and they have been in a position like that for centuries and centuries and centuries. And the land has been 
um, devastated by very many wars and desolations. Uh, in particular, the area, um, uh, the time period around the Ottoman Empire, not much happened there at all. The land was really lay desolate, which is fitting that description, which have always been waste. So much so, so desolate it was, that when travellers went to the Holy Land in the 1800s, and they saw the desolation there, and they read in the Bible that it said that it was a land that flowed with milk and honey, they started to cast doubt on the, the truthfulness of the Bible, because they couldn't sort of square that circle. So um, what we know today, of course, is that it is a land that's been brought back from the sword. It is a fruitful land. So what about other parts of these verses? Well, there's a reference to people now, gathered out of many people, brought forth out of the nations, highlighted there in yellow. And, and that's true of the Jews, isn't it? The current population of the land of Israel, which we know today as the land of Israel, which came into being in 1948, is about nine million people. And many of them are Jews who have been brought from the nations of the earth to which they had been scattered for centuries and centuries, whilst maintaining their identity as Jews and now are back in the land. So we've got some of these uh, criteria for this prophecy fulfilled by witnessing the situation in the land of Israel. There's just a little bit more that we'd like to look at, another aspect to this. You see right at the end of verse 8 there, they shall dwell safely, all of them. And this invader will say in verse 11, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls. So the situation of the land being now fruitful, the situation of the people being brought back is that they will dwell safely. So let's try and analyse those, those points. So those are the three conditions that must be met in order for this invasion to take place, in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled. Number one, the land restored. Number two, the people returned. And number three, peace reigns. Well, what do we think about how far we are down that road? The land is restored. That's, that's absolutely abundantly clear. The people have returned. What about peace reigning? Well, we might put a cross there and think, well, no, really, it's not uh, a peaceful land. Israel is armed to the teeth. Um, at any time, some of the people that uh, the, the neighbours that don't like Israel could invade. And, and so we can't possibly say that peace reigns. But peace does reign in certain areas. Um, there's peace with Egypt, for example. There is peace with Jordan. The threat from Syria is nullified now by the fact that that country has been devastated and that the Russians are effectively in control of that area. So we can get rid of that, I think. But can we give it a full tick? And we can't because there is still the problem with the Palestinians. There are still problems with Iran and other uh, situations there. So I think what we can do to be fair to the situation and trying to understand this prophecy is to say, let's give it a bit of a tick. Let's say we're beginning to see the fulfillment of the conditions whereby the people who live in the land of Israel are dwelling safely. We are beginning to see that. 
Now, what would need to be sorted out in order for uh, peace to reign? And we get to get all those conditions fulfilled, all of those three conditions fulfilled. Well, I think what would, it would take, it would be that um, a number of things, and I've just thought of four things here that, that we might be able to see. First of all, there needs to be a curbing of uh, Iranian hostility. Iran is a real enemy of Israel, and, and there needs to be some control of that situation. ISIS needs to be fully defeated, and it almost has been. Uh, it's just a possibility it could resurge, but it's unlikely. Um, find an acceptable solution for the Palestinians. That's been a problem for many, many years, but there are moves, there are constant attempts made trying to solve that problem. And uh, included with that is to ensure secure borders for Israel. And if those conditions could be achieved and could be met, then we could really give a tick, a complete tick and say, yes, they are now dwelling safely, dwelling without walls, having neither bars or gates, they are at rest. So there are certain things that need to happen and we're beginning to see some of those uh, taking place. Now, who is likely to bring about those changes in the Middle East? We might possibly think about this and say that the United Nations, that's a possibility, but they're unacceptable to Israel. There are so many UN resolutions which are anti-Israel, and, and so I think we could rule those out. The United States of America has made many attempts to try and see if it can sort out the problems of the Middle East, but they are currently unacceptable to Iran. Uh, and to the Palestinians, particularly in view of the current government in the United States, which is probably the most pro-Israeli government that has ever been. The European Union is another power not sufficiently involved to be considered a major, major player, in, in, in my opinion. So there is Russia. Now, through their involvement in the conflict in Syria, they are there, they're in situ. And they are the most likely to power to be trusted by all of the parties. Uniquely, they have the confidence of Israel and they have the confidence of Israel's enemies. And that's a really unique position to, to be in. And so I would suggest that whilst the United Nations or United States or the European Union are not in a good position to try and sort out this problem, that maybe Russia is. And we're going to see how this might come about. So then, let's just think about the foreign policy of Russia. This is what this is about, the foreign policy of Russia. Now, we can go right back to the 1850s and pick up on this article, which is a comment on the present aspect of Russia, and we can see how it was viewed in the 1850s. Russia, with an ambition that knows no bounds, with resources almost inexhaustible, and secret policy intriguing at every court in Europe, seeks to extend her territory over all of Central Asia and to outvie ancient Rome in the extent of her dominions and in the majesty of her power. Now that same ambition to expand its territory is there today. It was there in the times of the Soviet Union. And we've got the um, first uh, leader of the Soviet Union, Vladimir Lenin, that after the Russian Revolution in 1917 and the Bolsheviks coming to power, then there was the formation of the Soviet Union with six republics, including Russia, 
in the 30th of September 1922. And that grew over a period of time so that by the time the Soviet Union was dismantled on the 26th of December 1991, there were 15 republics that formed the Soviet Union, the, United, the Union of Socially, Socialist and Soviet Republics. Now, communism, which was their form of government, of course, uh, did not work. It's now been discredited. It did not work. And the time in the 90s when the, the Soviet Union was dismantled was a real difficult time for, for uh, Russia in, in that period. But what has happened since? Well, it's interesting to, 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 to plot this. And this is a particularly interesting book written by Robert Service, who is an um, emeritus professor of Russian history at, at Oxford University. And he, it, towards the end of this very um, extensive book, makes this comment. Russia's achievements since 1991 have not been unimpressive. Competition among political parties has survived. A market economy has been established. The heavy hand of the state, military, industrial establishment has grown weaker. Entrepreneurship has been fostered. Economic recovery and development have got underway. Russia was a humbled vestige of its old self to the end of the 20th century. In the present millennium, it is a great power again. Flattened Russia stands tall. That's an interesting assessment, isn't it, of somebody who has been involved in, in knowing and researching and studying and teaching about the history of Russia um, re, re, in recent times. So much so that The Economist is able to look at this man, Vladimir Putin, recognise the efforts that he has put in, the success with which he has rebuilt Russia, has rejuvenated Russia, and has given him the title of um, a czar. A czar is born. And uh, this was the, the front page of The Economist in 19, uh, sorry, in 2017. And there's a cover of a book written, published by Yale University, written by Agnia Grigas, which plots the uh, way in which uh, Russia is seeking to rebuild its empire, which is of great interest, really. This is Russia's foreign policy, and we're going to see what the driving factors are in a minute and how these driving factors relate to the land of Israel, which God says is his land, and to the people of Israel, which God says are his people. And she has identified um, a seven-staged re-imperialization policy, which is used by Russia to exert its influence in post-Soviet space. So concentrating on the former Soviet republics, she has identified these um, stages. We're going to very quickly just men mention something about each of them, very, very quickly. Soft power, the state's ability to wield influence based on its culture, political values and foreign policies. And so this organization was set up by President Putin in 2007 by presidential decree, Ruskimir Foundation. It's the Russian World Foundation. And then Russia has adopted humanitarian policies recognizing that there's a, a trend towards human rights, the recognition, recognition of human rights in the world and uh, international law. And so it's been able to say, well, if it's good enough for everybody else, it's good enough for us. So we're going to ensure that the human rights of all our citizens, wherever they might be in the former 
Soviet space. We will protect them. And it's pursued this policy, ignoring its own dismal record on human rights. And the left-hand side of the screen, it has policies which uh, the, the writer of that book has identified as compatriot policies. And there's another organization being set up there in 2008 to protect the interests of compatriots living abroad. That's anybody has got anything to do with Russia, whether they're Russian speakers, whether they were born as Russians, it's any connection at all, they would seize on that and say these are the compatriots uh, of, the, uh, of Russia. Passportization might need just a slight bit of uh, explanation that when the Soviet Union was dismantled, there were Russians living in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. And they had Soviet Union passports. They became worthless when the Soviet Union was no longer a country. And so Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania started to issue passports for its own people, for its own country. But any Russians who were living there, of which there are a sizable number in Estonia and Latvia, did not get the opportunity to get an Estonian, Latvian or Lithuanian passport. And so Russia has tried to address that problem, saying that these people have lost their citizenship. And so they are making sure that they are regarded as Russian citizens. It's all part of the, the policy of, of um, extending Russian influence uh, in the near abroad. Uh, situations get a little bit more um, uh, aggressive in areas like Ukraine, for example, where in the eastern borders uh, of Ukraine, there are many, many Russian speakers there. And what has, um, has, has happened, there has been conflict in there and Russia has been involved in um, a number of tactics to try to, to ensure that it gains the advantage. Invented news reports, for example, of mass refugee flows from Ukraine to Russia, taking control of, of um, television stations um, by getting rid of the Ukrainian ones and, and replacing them with Russian television stations and so on. And that is an ongoing problem. It's a, a, a frozen conflict in the area of eastern Ukraine. Um, there's also been problems in this is the country of Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, formerly part of the Soviet Union, with two particular parts of Georgia which have declared uh, themselves to be separate republics. It's not recognized by the world in general, but just by Russia and by some of Russia's closest allies. And of course, there was the war in South Ossetia in 2008. And it's been able to do this on the basis of protecting their citizens. And of course, Crimea, well known in 2004, how the Russians went in there uh, undercover, as it were, took control of Crimea. And that is the final stage in this seven stage re-imperialization policy of annexation. And Crimea is the only territory that has been annexed. So there's a very quick look at the arguments that are put forward in, in that book. Now, there's something that connects everything here, uh, and it is this. It's the Russians and the Russian language. That's the connecting factor. So in particular, ethnic Russians, but also those who are Russian speakers and citizens of the former Soviet Union who have cultural or religious links to Russia and the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, the book doesn't go to other areas outside of Russia. It doesn't cover the Russian diaspora outside of the former 14 former Soviet states. 
but the pattern is that the Kremlin would be concerned about Russians wherever they are in the world, always remembering that Russia always moves to further its own agenda. And these headlines now are most interesting. President Putin pledges to protect all ethnic Russians anywhere, 10th of April 2014. Russia's border doesn't end anywhere, Vladimir Putin says, 24th of November 2016. Putin promises decisive protection for ethnic Russians abroad, 31st of October 2018. And finally, just go back to that one uh, from the uh, Ruski Mir Foundation. Uh, we aim to protect the rights of Russians across the globe, 12th of September 2008. Now, let's just think about Israel, because we're interested in that prophecy, which we believe talks about a Russian invasion of Israel. We want to think why. What's the, what's the driving force behind that? Well, what we have to do is to think back to the Soviet Union days. And many Jews wanted to emigrate to Israel. They were not allowed to, and they became known as the Refuseniks. And it wasn't until Mikhail Gorbachev um, who is well known for his policies of glasnost and perestroika, he opened the borders to allow Russian Jews to emigrate to Israel, and within a 10-year period, nearly a million arrived in Israel, mainly from Russia. Now, up to 2020, the number of Russian speakers is estimated to be close to 1.5 million. It has the third largest Russian-speaking minority outside the former Soviet Union, there are only two of the former Soviet Union countries, Ukraine, where there are 8 million Russians, Kazakhstan, where there are over 3 million Russians, which have anything like that. And those two countries, they're very vast territories. So it's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of Russians have gone to Israel. Now, what we want to try to do now is to understand just a little bit about how Bible prophecy works. And I'm going to just take us on a, another slight deviation just to understand this very quickly. In the prophecy of Habakkuk in chapters 5 and 6, it talks about an invasion of a land. And it's an invasion of the land of Israel by the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans did come and they came in BC 605 and took captives back to Babylon, and it, there was a number of other invasions. And in 587, 586, they um, destroyed uh, Jerusalem and, and the temple. Um, and that, that incident is used and picked up in the New Testament after that event has occurred to sound a warning. And the Apostle Paul, in speaking in Antioch in Pisidia to the Jews, he said, Beware, therefore, this is the warning, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. And he quotes from Habakkuk, a prophecy which has already been fulfilled. And what he's saying is that prophecy which has been fulfilled, something like it is going to happen again if you don't change. And, and it was that the Romans came and the Romans conquered Jerusalem and they, they destroyed the temple on the very same day in the Jewish year, in the Jewish calendar, the very same day of the year that the Babylonians had previously destroyed the temple in 587, 586, or 587, depending on your chronology. And in AD 70, that happened again. Then other temple, Herod's temple, was destroyed. 
Now, why is this important? Because we can relate something now to the, um, the situation in Ezekiel chapter 38. There's an interesting verse there which reads this, Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? Writing in BC 600, the prophet was able to say, this is God's words, to say, you are going to be like something that I've already written about in the past. So where would that be? Well, one place is Isaiah chapter 8, and it's talking about an invasion of the land of Israel by the king of Assyria. And without looking at that in any great detail, what we will just do is have a look at what that invasion was. There were a number of different waves of invasions, but this one in particular is the one spoken of because it talks about conquering the land. And as the Taylor prison says, or the Sennacherib prison says, which is shown there, he records that he besieged but did not capture Jerusalem. But prior to that, he'd been given something. He'd been given gold and silver from Hezekiah so as not to come down. There'd been an agreement which Sennacherib had reneged on. And that is, I think, relevant to the situation that we're going to uh, consider um, in Ezekiel chapter 38. So let's just think about that now. Is this pattern to be repeated? If so, how and, and what for? What's, what's likely to happen? Well, picking up on some other verses from Ezekiel 38, verses 10 to 12, Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. And then there's the invasion spoken about, and the purpose of that is to take a spoil and to take a prey. Just like to read you a very short quotation from the uh, Times of Israel in, in September last year, when um, Vladimir Putin said this. He said, citizens of Russia and Israel are connected by ties of family, kinship and friendship. This is a real network, a common family, I say without exaggeration. Israel has two million Russian-speaking citizens. We consider Israel a Russian-speaking state. Now, that is very interesting, isn't it? From what we have seen already, how Russia is working to to reform its, its empire, how it is taking as its primary concern Russians in the near abroad, that is in the former Soviet republics, and now wider. As Putin says, it has no boundaries. And so what is likely to happen? What is this spoil that Putin wants? It's interesting that of the However many there are, 1.5 million, or as he claims, 2 million Russian Jews living in, in Israel. They have contributed immensely to the prosperity of the nation of Israel. So that this country of Israel now is a very, very prosperous country at all. Uh, at the cutting edge of, of a number of different areas of technology. And it seems that President Putin wants his people back. Let's just look now, as we're just coming to an end, 
of some uh, prophecies in the book of the prophet Zechariah. Let's just read what it says. It's speaking about the same type of invasion. And what I think is likely to happen is prophecy is likely to repeat itself. And just as Hezekiah bought off the Assyrians, thinking they would not come down, thinking he was safe, so there's going to be some kind of agreement which will bring about the peace that Ezekiel 38 speaks about. And Israel will then not suspect another invasion of the land. But Russian foreign policy, according to Bible prophecy, says that they will end up there. They will end up in the land of Israel. And I believe Zechariah chapter 14 is speaking of the same time, where it talks about half of the city going forth into captivity. I wonder if that's referring to the Russians that, that Putin wants back into his land. There's some other prophecies from uh, Zechariah in chapter 13. They're all dealing with the same time period, different aspects of, of the same time period, where he says there that in, in verse 8, it shall come to pass that in all the lands of the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, and the third shall be left therein. But that third is to be saved. And at the end of that little section, I will hear them, I will say it is my people, and they shall say the Lord is my God. So God has a plan for his people that beyond the invasion of the land of Israel and the devastation that Russia will cause, there will be an intervention by the Lord God of heaven, sending his son back to the earth as he has promised to save the Jews from their enemies and to establish, re-establish the kingdom of Israel with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne of his father David in Jerusalem. One more quotation. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and it shall come to pass that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. You see, the big stumbling block at the moment is the Jews' refusal to accept that the Lord Jesus Christ was their Messiah. And they're going to be brought to their knees. And when they are, then they will, when they are rescued by him, realize for the first time that he was the one who they should have looked up to, but their fathers put him to death. And he is the one now who has come to, to save them. And they will look unto him and mourn for what had happened in the past and rec recognize him as their savior. So Russian foreign policy then about its future invasion of Israel, which currently is something that they would not own up to, is very much there in Bible prophecy. And, and when it starts to happen, it will bring about massive changes in the world. We've seen a massive change in the world as a result of an invisible virus that is circulating throughout all the countries of the earth almost. But this is going to be a bigger impact when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth and sets up God's kingdom upon the earth. It's a time of great blessing for the nations. And we can be part of it by taking heed now to those things that are written in the word of God, that we might prepare ourselves for that great day when Jesus returns to the earth. Thanks very much for listening.